The book of the prophet Haggai. It's one of the smaller prophetic books, but crucially important in the overall story of the Hebrew Bible. So for centuries, the Hebrew prophets had been accusing Israel of breaking their covenant with God through idolatry and injustice. And they warned that God would send the great empire of Babylon to take out Jerusalem, destroy the temple, and haul off the people into exile. And it all happened in the year 587 BC. But that wasn't the end of the story. The prophets also believed that there was still hope and that God would one day bring back a transformed remnant of his people Israel to live in a new Jerusalem where God's presence would live in their midst. Now, when we turn to Haggai, the year is 520 BC, nearly 70 years after the exile. And the Babylonian empire has recently collapsed and the world is now ruled by the Persians. Now, they allowed the return of any exiled Israelites who wanted to go back to Jerusalem, which still lay in ruins. And so under the leadership of a high priest named Joshua and Zerubbabel, an heir from the line of David, and a group of exiles, they all returned and began to rebuild the city and their lives. Remember the story from the book of Ezra, chapters 1 to 6. So our hopes are high and the future seems very bright, but it's not actually, at least from Haggai's point of view. The book consists of four sections that summarize Haggai's message given to the people of Jerusalem over the course of four months. He opens by accusing the people of misplaced priorities. And so, yes, they have come back to Jerusalem, but they're spending all of their time and resources rebuilding their own fancy houses, while the temple still lay in ruins from its destruction from 70 years ago. So Haggai asks, are your own houses really more important than your allegiance to God? This neglect, Haggai says, is tantamount to the covenant rebellion of their ancestors, which is why the land is still unproductive, why they've been struck with famine and drought. And here Haggai's quoting from the list of covenant curses in the book of Deuteronomy. And so Haggai's challenging words, they're followed by a story of the people's response. Remember also the story in Ezra chapter 5. We're told that Zerubbabel, Joshua, the remnant of the people were provoked by Haggai's message and they were motivated. They started rebuilding the temple. So in the next section, Haggai follows up one month later and he addresses some problems of shattered expectations among the people. So the temple that they're rebuilding is really pretty unimpressive. It's nothing compared to the glory of the temple Solomon built here some 500 years earlier. And so morale was really low for finishing the project. And so Haggai reminds the people of the great prophetic promises of the future kingdom of God and about this temple. He draws from the earlier prophets, especially Isaiah and Micah, about the new Jerusalem and that it would be the place from which God would redeem the whole world and where all nations would come and participate in God's kingdom, resulting in an era of peace. And so the temple, it plays a key role in God's plans for the future. And Haggai calls on the people to work in hope despite the disappointing circumstances. In the third section, Haggai follows up two months later with a call to covenant faithfulness. And he engages some priests in a conversation about ritual purity. Remember all the key ideas from the book of Leviticus. So he says, if someone goes and touches a dead body and becomes ritually impure or marked by death, and then they go and touch some food, is that food impure too? And the priests, knowing the book of Leviticus, say, yes, it's impure. And then Haggai turns this into a parable. He says, this is how it is with the people of Israel and what they're putting their hands to in rebuilding the temple. If the current generation doesn't humble themselves, if they don't turn from injustice and apathy, then Haggai says, whatever they build with their hands, including this new temple, will be impure too. 
Haggai's challenge is that it's only by true repentance and covenant faithfulness that their building efforts will result in God bringing his kingdom and blessing. And so, in a sense, Israel's future lay in their hands. God's waiting for his people to be faithful. And so the choice that Haggai's laying before the exiled generation, it's very similar to the challenge Moses gave the wilderness generation before entering the land. Their obedience will lead to blessing and success, while faithlessness will lead to ruin. The book concludes with Haggai's summary of the future hope of God's kingdom. He's going to make the new Jerusalem the center of his glorious international kingdom. And from there, he will confront and defeat evil among the nations. He reminds people of the defeat of Pharaoh's army in the Exodus story. God will fulfill here his promise to David and establish the king from his line. And in Haggai's day, that was represented by Zerubbabel. And so the book ends with the choice of a bright future just hanging there. So the question is, will Haggai's generation be faithful to God? Will they experience the fulfillment of all these promises? And Zerubbabel, will he be faithful? Will he turn out to be the messianic king? And you have to just keep reading into the final two books of the prophets, Zechariah and Malachi, to find out. But you can see how this little book contains a great challenge to every generation of God's people, that our choices really matter, and that the faithfulness and obedience of God's people is part of how God has chosen to work out his purposes in the world. And so this surprising truth should motivate humility and action in God's people as they look forward to God's coming kingdom. And that is the message of the book of Haggai. All right, so you've got all that, right? All I got to do is say amen and we're good? Amen. Yeah. All right. Let's go home. Yeah. You know what? If you're like me, I got a third of the way through that and I thought, what? Yeah. And then, but if you were, like Bobby's talking about, if you were a millennial, you said, wait, what? You know, because you have to put wait in front of what when you say that. I didn't know if y'all know that or not. You know what, I, you know what I've learned? That uh, this life is just not for the faint of heart, is it? I mean, I've, no, I've got six daughters, seven grandchildren, two dogs, and Bobby. I don't know where you want to put those in order, but I'm just telling you this life is not for the faint of heart. We are just like the people of Israel. And it's important to understand who we are in the story of Haggai. Now, most of you probably have not heard a sermon on the book of Haggai, but if you have, you might have heard somebody like me preach on the book of Haggai, especially the first chapter, talking specifically about building a building. But I don't believe that is the point that Haggai is trying to make at all. I think Haggai's trying to make a bigger point. But before I get to that point, I want to make sure you understand, kind of like this uh, short video gave you, a picture of when this is happening in the world. So they're going to put a timeline up behind me. And if you just take a look at the center screen, it's going to give you a bit of a timeline that will walk you through the story of the Old and New Testament. Beginning with, of course, we, we start with creation, but shortly thereafter, we get the patriarchs. This is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You got it? So we know that from Bible stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then, they, then we've got this problem where the Israelites who are, are captive to the people in Egypt, Moses comes along, God uses Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, that's the Exodus. Right after that comes the conquest and the judges, that's are people like Joshua and Gideon. And then the monarchies happen. This is when the people of Israel said, we want a king. And God was like, but you don't need a king, you have me. But they kept screaming, said, fine, I'll give you what you want. And they got Saul. 
Well, they got Saul, and shortly after then they got David, and we see this continue through Solomon, and then the, king, then the kingdom divides. Well, as the kingdom divides, then the Babylonians take over, and the Babylonians take all the people of Israel out of their homeland, put them into exile and captivity in Babylon, and this is when we read all kind of things going wrong because the temple and the city of Jerusalem has fallen into disrepair, and it's just like a, a literally a nowhere town where nothing good is happening. And so this is where we are now. Right after that time comes what's known as the post-exilic or post-exile period, which would have been up to about 430 BC. And this is the rebuilding of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. It'd be Haggai through the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And so this is what's happening around 430 BC. Now, then you have the time between the Testaments, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and then starting in Acts, the birth of the early church all the way through today. So if you take a look at this, you say, Haggai, it's really important to know why Haggai is happening post-exile. Because here's what's going on. You had people in exile, as Rachel read the scriptures, over in this land of Babylon. While in Babylon, the people of God, the people of Israel, they are completely out of their space and away from their faith. They are being pressed down, and now God has found a way with the Persians taken over so that they can leave Babylon, and now they can head back over to Jerusalem. And as they show up in Jerusalem, they realize that we're in big trouble because we're in a post-pandemic era. You see what I did there, right? I mean, I could have gotten one amen, just one. That's all I was looking for, just one. I mean, do you know how lonely it is up here when you throw that out there and people look at you like, yeah. So let me try try that one more time. It's like a post-pandemic era. Liars. And so, so the challenge here is this. Everything is falling apart. And now Haggai is saying, hey, guys, you're spending so much time trying to rebuild your houses and your government and your economy and your education that you've left God out of all of this rebuilding. And this is why you're miserable in your life right now. Now, the easiest thing to do is to come back and go to work on our stuff because we're not different than middle schoolers. Like, you, you, go, you tell a middle schooler something, and what's the first thing a middle schooler thinks? What, is, what does that mean to me? Well, you say the same thing to a 40-year-old, and what do they say? What does that mean to me? You say that to a 70-year-old. What do they say? What does that mean to me? Well, what's happening here is that Haggai is about to unload some truth because the message that Haggai gives as he steps back into the task of motivating God's people to reevaluate what they'd be doing starts in verse 2. And in verse 2, the text says, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says, the people. You see those two words? The people. Now watch this. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to the people of Israel as what? My people. All through the Old Testament, God refers to the Old Testament people as my people. Then why now is it the people? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever gotten what we call in our house tukey with your spouse? You ever gotten there? Or, or I know that's, Allison is nodding her head over there like never. And I know that's, I can't even imagine how hard it would be to live with Allison. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking to myself, you know, these things happen. And when they, when they happen, we get tukey. The people had gotten tukey with God. 
It's like, God, listen, if you had made us more wealthy, we could take care of your stuff, but right now we got to take care of our stuff. And then when you get too key, you know what you do? People say, are you okay? Fine. Well, how do you feel? Great. What would you like to eat? Food. Are you with me? You get the, you get the point of Tukey, right? Y'all use that somewhere in your life today. And just like you look at your spouse, when they get that, that the way, you just say, Tukey, like, stop it. Get out of the Tukey. Stop it. Like Jenny will literally look at me sometimes and say, uh, we Tukey today? No, I think you just proved it, right? So, I mean, but the people are Tukey with God. And God says, wait a minute, you people, come on. I mean, really, you people. And so when this happens, it's an idea of how bad things have gotten. The people have completely left God out of rebuilding their life. But God loves his people. God has a plan for his people, and God wants to rebuild his people. But now watch this. We are just like the people of Israel. We have not changed over all of these centuries. Because over all these centuries, what we are is just like them. 21 years ago today... America fell on its knees to pray that God would rebuild the country after the disaster of 9-11. People flocked to churches and flocked to prayer because what had happened was something that was disastrous and horrible and evil, and as a result, people returned to God. But I haven't seen our people stay there with God. I've seen our people grow more comfortable with greater affluence to do less with what we have than any people on the planet because all we tend to do today is gripe about everything. We gripe about politics. We gripe about education. We gripe about the cost of everything. We gripe about everything. I mean, we've griped so much that we gripe about church. Like, you know what my favorite saying from couples today when they come and they say, Chuck, we're just, we just struggling. I'll say, when's the last time you sat in a worship service together? We just don't have time. And I thought, wait a minute. It, we make it so hard for you to park in a parking lot and trudge all the way across that asphalt to get into a building where people are welcoming you to say, come on in. And then we make you drink hot or cold coffee. Some of it cold brewed, nitro brewed. I mean, blueberry infused, all the different flavor. It must be brutal to have to come to church. And then you have to walk into a room that right now you're thinking is too cold, too hot, too noisy, too long, too boring, or too something. I had one lady a few weeks ago that said, this gray, I just got, it's just too gray. And I shared with her what I would share with you when you share those kind of things to me. Bless your heart. <laughs> this is what the people of Haggai were like. They were just like, Ooh. but they were spending all of their effort on their selves. The people needed to recover from the huge losses that they had experienced. They had come out of being in exile, and they had to rebuild their life, rebuild their economy, rebuild their businesses, rebuild their homes. And they were spending all their times in rebuilding themselves. How quick we are to find excuses to blame God when we're not being about his work, his way, or his will. Because that's when everything falls apart. It's like, well, God, listen, if you made enough, if you let me make enough money, I can give to the church. Well, let me, you know, history would prove this. If you're not giving what you've got from now, you're not going to give when you have more. 
Well, God, I would serve if I just didn't have to do all. Okay, well, what 14 things do you have your kids enrolled in that you have to shuttle them to all week long? Well, I just don't have time because my little one needs to go to that dance class. How old is she? She's four. She has no idea what you're doing in a dance class. I have had six daughters. I know these things. If you really want to know about what your kids should sign up for or not, just call me. But could I just be prepared that most of the answers are going to be, no, don't do that. Just let your kid play. Just let your kid play. I'm not going to get on that. I'm just, but listen, what happens is we let the part of God in our lives get lazy. The Israelites, the returning exiles, had the time to do God's work if they wished to make time. Matthew Henry, the commentator, said, for the person who wills to do right, the time is always present. But humanity is brilliant when we wish to hide our laziness. Most of us aren't spiritual, not because we don't get the Bible. That's just lazy talk. We're not spiritual because we don't prioritize God in our life. And what Haggai is saying to the people of Israel and saying to us in Sugar Hill today is this. The challenge we have in America today is the same challenge we had with the people of Israel in Jerusalem in 430 B.C. Is that we are not prioritizing God in our life. We have prioritized everything else in our post-pandemic world. We've prioritized our economy. We've prioritized politics. I know people in this church, in this room, people in this section right here who literally have determined that they're going to make Republicans or Democrats their theology, not their politic, political beliefs. And I would say to you, when you've done that, you've got God out of order in your life. Because I'll promise you, the problem in America is not our politics, it's that we haven't prioritized God. Amen. It's that simple. But, I, but wait, before we get all fired up about statements when the pastor gets fired up, let me remind you, I'm talking to people who are doing that. I'm not preaching to the choir. I'm also preaching in the mirror. I know what happens when your life gets out of margin, and I know what happens when your life isn't in sync with God's will in your life. Listen to me, friends. If you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to jot down is this. It is all about priorities. It's all about priorities. Everything in our walk with Christ is all about priorities. If you make God fourth on your list, you might as well have made him last on your list. If you made God second on your list, he may as well be last on your list. God is either first on your list or he is not on your list. Well, Chuck, I, I, I give the church an hour of my time. Well, how about that? The challenge I would say for all of us is, where is God Monday through Saturday in your life? Chuck, I don't have time. The Hebrew word for that is bull. God gave you all the same number of seconds, minutes, and hours. What you do with them is based on how you prioritize your life, period. Well, Chuck, you don't understand. I bet I do. Chuck, do you know how hard it is? I have to work 100 hours a week. Okay. Is that because you have to or just because you just want that second house or the boat? Or maybe the affirmation of that better job or maybe that bigger home because let's face it those things are more important than prioritizing God right 
Well, I would say stop and look at America today and ask yourself, how long can we sustain this? Because right now we're living in unsustainable America. And until such time as we prioritize God in this world again, and by the way, before you start porting fingers that somebody else needs to prioritize God in their life, I want you to ask yourself, how well have I prioritized God in my life? Because this is where the rubber hits the road. In verse 3, Haggai says, Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? That leads me to this point. Are you ready? Jot this one down. God's work has to come before our work. You say, well, wait a minute, Chuck. Do you mean that uh, working in preschool or children or students or going to Bible study, that's work? No, no, no. Those are chores. That's not work. The work of God in your life is when you put God in that space and you let his word get in your heart and in your soul and doing the work in your life day by day by day by day. I mean, it's simply a chore to go work and do things with your hands. The work of God is when you take enough time to prioritize God. We've made it so stinking easy. Just listen to the five-minute weekday podcast, get scripture in your life, and and you say, but Chuck, I... I have to listen to my sports talk radio in the morning. Then here's what I'd say to you. Then are you willing to put the dogs ahead of God? Ouch. Are you, are you, are you willing to put the rambling wreck ahead of God? All two of you. And listen to me, friend. It, you say, but Chuck, you, you don't understand. These things are important in my life. I get it. I really do. Shuttle my kids to all this stuff is important. I get it. But is it more important to you than receiving the blessing of God? Because what he's saying is these people are spending all their time on their luxurious lifestyle, and then they're living, letting the house of God be completely in disrepair. But remember, he's not talking about a building. He's talking about our heart. He's talking about our hearts being in spiritual disrepair, needing to be rebuilt because we simply need to prioritize his work above ours. You see, the rebuilding of the temple was simply a barometer of those people's spiritual condition. And by the way, your willingness to put God in the priority of your life is a barometer of your spiritual condition. And the spiritual condition can be measured if you look at your calendar and your checkbook. Where does God fit in those two areas? The people's excuse was that it wasn't the right time. And I would say to you, it is always the right time to put God in the right priority. Always. The second thing is, God's way has to become our way. God's way has to become our way. And it must come before our way. Haggai asked some questions, and they're simple. He says, are you sowing more than than harvesting less? In other words, are you working harder and getting less out of it? Sound familiar? Are you, are, you, are you pumping the same amount of gas and paying more for it? I'm trying to get as ridiculously practical as I can here. Are you eating and drinking more and enjoying it less? Are you wearing more and feeling less warmth? The, the, the warmth, literally the statement when you dig into the Hebrew, feeling less safe, feeling less at home, feeling less comfortable. Are you earning more and able to buy less? I mean, was Haggai speaking to 2022 or speaking to 430 B.C.? And I would say yes. Here's the statement I want you to leave here with today in this. Nobody cheats God without cheating themselves at the same time. 
Nobody cheats God without cheating yourself. One point made in verse 6 is that there's a real correlation between the productivity of the land and the spiritual growth of the believing remnant post-exile. Well, you say, well, Chuck, don't get so personal. Well, I, let me just ask a few things. Are you less satisfied? Do you, do you work longer and harder yet have, feel like you're getting further and further behind? Let me go so far as to say that one possible reason we seem to get further and further behind as a country is we're, we've forgotten that God's trying to get our attention. He sent Haggai to get the attention, the attention of the people. But now watch this. We have worked on everything in our life. A recent poll said 83% of American adults say that they are either somewhat or very dissatisfied with their life. That means only 17% of Americans say, I'm satisfied with my life. Does that not frighten you? This is unsustainable, y'all. We can't keep living this way. We've changed almost everything in our life except this one thing, how we see, trust, and obey God's direction for our life. We've changed everything but that. And Haggai still says, if you want the blessings of God, this is what you've got to return to. The priorities we set in our day-to-day lives are proven statements of our priorities. We prove them every single day. I believe God is still calling us to make a radical break with all that type of thinking and planning and to place his ways, his cause, his goals in first place above everything else. In Haggai verse 7, it says, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says, look at what's happening to you. I mean, Haggai's saying, can you not see what's happening? Just look around at the mess that your marriage is in. Look at the mess that your family's in. Look at the mess that your school is in. Look at the mess that your community is. Look at the mess your country's in. Can you not see that the one thing we're missing is the prioritization of God's way, God's work, and God's will? Can we not see that? And the answer is, yes, we do see it, but we don't have the courage to fix it in our own life. Because what we want to say is that somebody else ought to do that. And the problem is that God, while he has a universal love for all of us, wants to do individual individual surgery in us. That he gets at the top of the list. Friend, listen. There's a purpose for obedience. The response God wanted from his people was to go up to the mountains, cut down the timber, and begin to build. In verse 8 it says, now go up to the hills bring down timber and rebuild my house. And then what this little God says, then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. And remember, this is not about the building of the physical temple. This is about rebuilding your spiritual heart. This is about going away and getting time to specifically work on you and God. You say, I don't know how to work on me and God. It starts just like this tomorrow morning. God, I need you today. Chuck, that doesn't sound like much for prayer. For most of you in this room, that's more prayer than you've offered in the last 30 days outside of a meal. God, I I need your help today. God, would you give me wisdom today? But friend, listen, I do believe there is a cost of disobedience. I mean, there's a purpose for obedience, but there's a cost to disobedience. I mean, in verse 9, you hoped for rich harvests but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine homes. You're working on everything but your soul. And what the Lord is saying to you, it's not hard. Get me in the right priority of my life. 
You say, but Chuck, I don't want to give up all the stuff in my life. I like my stuff. Haggai is not saying, nor is the Lord saying, give up your stuff. All that he's saying is put God above your stuff. There's nothing wrong with your kid playing travel ball. Matter of fact, if your kid's going to play travel ball, man, tune him up. Turn, turn that kid loose. But don't put him ahead of God. Don't put ball ahead of God. Don't put your dance class ahead of God. Don't put your job ahead of God. Don't put your second home ahead of God. Nothing wrong with any of those things. As a matter of fact, I wish for you to have all those things, especially if you tithe on them. But listen, let's make sure that we get God in the right priority of our life because this is where the problem lies. The cost of, deci- of, the cost of disobedience is, is, is high. And people generally experience shortages of raw materials, manufactured goods, feuds, and wages. Does that sound familiar? Disobedience is never a shortcut to success, ever. But listen, as I close, there's the beauty of obedience, too. In verse 12, all these guys, Zerubbabel, all of them, they come down through here, and the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message from the Lord their God. And when they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, the people feared the Lord. From leadership, continuing down through all the rank and file, and the people began to obey the Lord their God. Suddenly, as a result of Haggai's preaching and the convicting convicting power of the Holy Spirit, the people who had been, in effect, practicing atheists started to obey the Lord. Praise God. They feared the Lord, it says. Fear, not in this context to be confused with state of being frightened, but to be in awe. To be in awe of the goodness and the wonder of God, born and birthed out of the trust of the living God. To fear the Lord is to depart from evil and to rejoice in the Lord with trembling. That's simply what it's talking about. God, not this world's false offerings of hope, peace, happiness, and joy. This is the priority he's calling us to. Friend, listen. Haggai is saying to the people of Israel and to you right now, if you want to get this world right and get your world right, prioritize God in your life starting right now. Somebody like it. So why not do this, right? Why not? I mean, if nothing else, I mean, just the pragmatist in me says, nothing else has worked. I don't think any of us would say America's a more godly country now because we've done whatever we've done. I mean, you pick whatever side of the aisle you're on, whatever you've done, whatever they've done, whatever they've done and you've done. We're not better because of it. We are further away from God today than the people of Israel were then because we're working on our own stuff and not prioritizing the way, the work, and the will of God the Father. But you can do that. And you can make that choice right now. You say, well, Chuck, listen, I I, I have no idea how to prioritize God in my life. I thought I just had to come to church. Well, that's not a bad start. But here's what I'd say to you tomorrow morning. It's this simple. God, would you give me wisdom? Chuck, I don't don't know if God hears that or not. Well, listen, leave it up to God whether he hears it or not. Leave it up to him. I mean, he's the one who will make his decision about that. You don't have to worry about that. Well, Chuck, how am I going to know if God gives me wisdom? Well, let me ask you this. Over the course of seven or eight days of asking God for wisdom, you think you'll feel like you're making better decisions? Well, well, you think God would do that? Well, he promised he would. God hadn't messed up a promise yet. Well, well, Chuck, but but if I prioritize my God, am I going to have to stop cussing? 
Well, I'd just leave the cussing to the Lord. He can handle it. I, I, I'm not, you, don't, you don't worry about, don't stop trying to think about loving God and prioritizing God as you doing good stuff. Loving God has nothing to do with you doing good stuff. Because you can't do good, enough good stuff. You can't give enough up of your junk to make God love you more. God loves you, period. That's it. So stop thinking you've got to give up your junk, right? You say, but, but Chuck, if, I don't think Christians do this or that. Of course they do. They just hide it better than most people. So why don't you just trust God to all that and stop worrying about it? Because this isn't about changing your behavior. This is about trusting God. This isn't about what you drink or eat or act or say. This is about putting God in the highest priority of your life. Listen, I promise you, when you do that, he'll fix all the other junk. Just let him have it. You say, well, Chuck, that that doesn't sound very preacherly of you. Lord, I hope not, because preacherly hadn't changed anything in this country in 200 plus years. But I promise you, you prioritize God and things will change. That's why we want you to know God and experience and discover your purpose. And it starts by saying, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need you to forgive me of all my imperfection. Jesus, I need you to take over, be my number one priority. I want you to change the way I think or act or judge. I just want you to take over. And I want to follow you because let's face it, the world's going to be a whole lot better when we act more like Jesus. And Jesus, I want to thank you. You died for me and you rose from the dead for me and you're sitting beside God the Father in heaven praying for me right now. And I'm, I'm tired of living for me. I'm going to live for you. And you say, Chuck, do I have to say it just like you did? No, heavens no. All you got to do is say, Jesus, I'm calling on your name. That's all you got to say. And he'll hear you and he will answer your prayer. And I promise you, if you'll let us know, we'll send you a text every day for 30 days. It shows you exactly how to walk through the scriptures about how much he loves you. It's that simple. Father, thank you. Lord, as the band comes out and we prepare to just sing this one quick doxology, I pray we remember when we sing praise God from all, all blessings flow. We remember your goodness. And when we prioritize you, Lord, our lives are richly blessed. Thank you that in you we can have all things. In you we can do all things. And apart from you, we do nothing. So give us the courage to prioritize you. Praise you, Father, for all that you've done. In Jesus' name. Come on, stand with us as we sing. Praise God from Blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Come on, sing it, church. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Come on, sing it, church. Praise God for all that He has done. Praise Him for He has
let this Jesus we've talked about go before you and make a way and make your crooked path straight. That's what he does. Come on, one amen. That's what he does. Let this Jesus go within you and bring you peace and joy, fulfillment and contentment. Because friend, listen, he is always good and you are always loved. Come on, one amen. I love this one. And when things get difficult, and they will, let this Jesus come behind you and pick you up and carry you. Not around the problem, but right through the stinking middle of it. Only to set you down victoriously on your two feet. Wipe away your tears and kiss you on the forehead and wrap his loving arms around you. Drawing you up close so you can hear your Savior say, My child, say it with me. I love you. I love y'all. Go in peace.